This is Writing Lives, Biography and Beyond, a podcast by the Oxford Centre for Life Writing. I'm Catherine Collins. And I'm Kate Kennedy. Join us as we talk to leading biographers and academics about every aspect of life writing. Today we're going to hear from Tamarin Norwood, an esteemed member of the Life Writing Centre team and a brilliant artist and researcher. She's going to talk to us about her work in progress, which is about the short life of her son Gabriel. So Tamarin, tell us about the project. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Um, so this is this is absolutely not the book I would ever have expected to write. That's the first thing to say. Um, it, it's it's really emerged out of my research, but in a very unexpected way. My 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 doctoral project looked at well, I'm really an artist and writer, and my doctoral project looked at the rather magical process of artistic creation, and how you you begin with the, some dream of an idea, glinting around, swimming around in the in the depths of your mind, and then gradually. As you try to bring that glinting, dreamy idea up into the light of day to create some kind of artistic work, at that point of creation, some life in that thing is lost. So the kind of crux of my thesis was that the moment of creation brings with it some kind of death of the thing that you're trying to create. Now, that was what my research was about. But the very strange thing, the very sad thing was that as I was preparing for my viva, I was also pregnant and I was learning gradually over the course of the pregnancy as my doctoral viva was approaching that sadly our baby son, um, his lungs weren't developing properly and we gradually came to realise that he wouldn't survive. He, He may survive birth, but he would very likely only survive by a few minutes or a few hours. Now, the absolutely uncanny and strange thing was that this was exactly, in a metaphorical sense, what I'd just written about for my doctorate. The the very act of creation was going to resolve itself in in the loss of the very thing I'd been trying to create. And more than that, the specifics were seemed to be impossibly identical, so that, um, my defil was full of allusions to water and fish and being as being under in, in sleep and coming up into the light of day and waking up and how dreams can't be brought up into the light of day and then here we had this little baby who was fine where he was in the underwater world of my womb and yet as we brought him up into the light like a fish surfacing from water his lungs wouldn't be able to work in air and so he he sadly very peacefully died in my arms and this was such an absolutely uncanny and strange coincidence that this is this is what the book is trying to make sense of. And thank you for that beautiful introduction, Tamarin. I feel like there are so many places where this conversation could go, but perhaps we should start by talking a little bit more about the coincidences between what you were researching and what you were experiencing. Yeah, I mean, the whole book has come out of this. It, it, there seemed to be no other option but to to write up what had happened because of all these coincidences. Not to say that it needed to turn into a book, but it it needed to be made sense of. The, the coincidences between my research, between art and life in these months were electrifyingly confusing. And it did something very, very good and something very, very... Well, I don't know if it was bad, but it, it made it—it it made the process of preparing for my viva certainly practically intolerable, because I knew the double meanings of everything that I had to sit down with a highlighter and biro and and sort of annotate and think about. But at the same time, the coincidence 
made something rather magical be happening in our house. I mean, I often, I remember I said to my husband more than once, who needs poetry when we have this? Um, it seemed so impossible that these parallels were so precise that it made me feel like we were living in some kind of poetic version of reality, some kind of fiction. Um, and and I think that that really helped, that certainly helped me find ways of understanding the very, very strange and unusual and unworldly experience of um, of carrying a baby who you you sort of know very intimately but the moment you'll actually get to meet him he will he will he will he will die it's very difficult to get your head around that almost impossible people really struggle and yet i had all of these strange metaphors banked up ready to use effectively so the coincidence the coincidences and the depths of coincidence um completely transformed my experience of his of bereavement of, of anticipatory bereavement and bereavement One of the things that's quite often pointed out when a woman writes about a traumatic or difficult experience is that scholars and critics wonder whether the experience was therapeutic. And I'm not going to ask you about that, but it led me to wonder, what kinds of other questions do you not want to be asked about this? Um, Yeah, um, it's it's difficult because I suppose it depends on the context. Um, I'm very interested to talk with you about the craft of writing the book because here we are all, you know, we, we're all interested in life writing. Um, but I, I have before talked about the um, the some of the ideas behind the project at, at a conference and a lot of the questions coming back were all about the personal experience. And I thought that was a wasted opportunity because although it's a very, very interesting and unusual experience that people want to ask about, I wasn't in the room to do that. So I, I didn't mind, but it wasn't quite what the point was. Um... I I don't know. I mean, to be honest, the worst thing that can happen is that people pretend it hasn't happened and don't ask questions and don't talk about it or think that um, it might be painful to to bring him up. You know, I, I very his name was Gabriel, and I very much like using his name and for people to know his name. Um, and being um, the mother of two children is, is is a very important part of my identity. I'm not the mother of one child, but two. And I think what what's what I don't like people doing is is trying to make me feel better by pretending it hasn't happened. Because actually, that's probably the worst thing you can do to somebody who really wants to keep hold of the memory of of somebody who's who's gone. How important is that impetus in the writing of the book? Because one way of making sure that people absolutely can't ignore it is by writing and publishing a book about it. Absolutely. I, I often think how, when when he first died, I was actually I was unemployed um, because I'd finished my defil and I was I was actually on maternity. I took maternity leave, which you can do if your if your baby dies. But I didn't have any any employment lined up because I didn't know what was going to happen to me. I didn't know what kind of state I was in. So I made a decision. I mean, I was very fortunate because I, you know, I was looking for academic work and I constructed a project that would allow me to spend all of my time doing nothing but writing about my son. So I have this um, fellowship in which I am writing this book, and that's really the main part of the um, of the fellowship. So I very quickly made it my identity and made it my business to be his mother um, and spend all of his infancy with him. But of course, it's not a real infancy; it's it's an imaginary infancy. So it's a we're already fringing on uh, the various fictions that I'm I'm keeping going in my mind. 
Tell us more about these various fictions. We've talked a bit about these these beautiful ideas of night and the underwater. And of course, you spent a matter of minutes with him. But we don't know what his favourite colour is. We don't know who his friends would have been. And so any projection into the future about his life has, by definition, to be a fiction, doesn't it? And you play so wonderfully and so subtly and deftly all the way through the book with these different fictions, interweaving them and using them to create some kind of panoply of a story around him. So I just wonder, for the listener who hasn't read it, could you describe how you made those decisions and what you do and something about the way that the book functions? Yeah, I mean, it's a very short life. It's 72 minutes. And although he he lived before that in my womb, and of course, in a situation like this, you, you really can't deny, you have to go with the idea that he was absolutely living part of his life before he was born. Um, but it's a very, very short thing to write a book about. And when you're faced with a very, very short life, and you're trying to write the story of the life, you need to do something to make the life bigger. And obviously, his life couldn't really be bigger in in the life of our family. But how do you find enough to say? So this is where sort of invention comes in. And a lot of the book spends a lot of time in metaphor and metaphorical, um, sort of extended, expanding metaphors that link up to kind of create new insight into his life. But um, one of the things I had to be very careful to avoid doing was um, creating a version of him that wasn't real. Because, Kate, you mentioned this this idea that we we can create versions in our mind of, of, of... I mean, well, what we certainly do when we're pregnant, we certainly imagine what the child will be like. I think everybody does this. You make guesses about what you think, what colour, what favourite colour the child will have, what its personality will be like, and so on. Um, the stakes are very different when the baby isn't going to be able to correct your guesses and assumptions and daydreams in life. Because then what you're doing is you're actually creating a fictional version of your child who, and that will be the only version you end up with. So I was working away. I mean, my, my, my D field presented me with lots and lots of metaphors. So I was experiencing his pregnancy and birth and, and death through these metaphors. But at the same time, I had to be very careful not to invent him. And it's such a fine line. And maybe I can actually read you a paragraph in which um, which really deals with exactly this. Yeah, would you? That would be lovely. Um, so this is from chapter one, which is the chapter that tells the story of the pregnancy and all of the tests and probes and so on, in which we were gradually discovering that this wasn't going to be a baby we'd be able to take home. One afternoon, my mother held my hand as a thick needle was pushed through the taut skin of my belly to extract a little of the scant remaining fluid. Putting my coat on afterwards, I watched the midwife peel two printed labels from a sheet in her file and apply one to each of the plastic vials the needle had supplied. Twin vials, smaller than I'd imagined, neat and contained like oxygen tanks. I asked to hold them. Their smooth, even weight was warm against my skin. But for the plastic, but for the span of a minute or so, the cold of the room, the coat done up, I almost held him then. We almost held him in the evenings too, as he grew and his movements became very prominent. We would watch the spectacle sadly. When he kicked, the protrusion of his limbs into the very air of the room seemed otherworldly, like dreams pluming from the furthest horizons of our world, and we wished he were real. Yet he was real. 
It was just that for us, the nature of his realness was impossible to grasp. And then I talked a little about um, how I would write to him and lay my hands on my belly and sway with him and sing to him, as we always do when, we, when we're pregnant and we're creating a relationship with our, with our child. Um, and then I was reflecting a little in the book on what it meant to be writing to him because I was writing to him in a kind of in the kind of tone you would write to a child as though he could actually understand. I wasn't using long words, I was using childlike words, which was obviously absurd because he wasn't really reading this. So I'll read you this last paragraph about the writing. But in this way the writing contributed to a confusion in my mind about the ways in which Gabriel was with us while he was with us. The line of writing seemed to connect me with an imaginary friend I'd be able to commune with for as long as I needed him only with a brief complication at the moment of his birth, before he could be returned safely to my imagination. I knew this to be untrue, and I resisted the comfort it brought me. But it was impossible to grasp exactly what was true of him, and I urgently needed to, before the complication of his birth. And the new imaginary turned out not to be the same. Tamron, in your writing, you said the word line a lot. Um, for example, there was a fine line between fact and fiction. You said the line of writing. You spoke of your relationship with Gabriel as a line. And even the needle is sort of line shaped, isn't it? The thing that you began your reading with. So I can see really clearly the relationship between water and pregnancy because water is the fluid where the baby grows. But can you tell us a bit more about where lines come in for you? Yeah, um, I think the lines were an emergency, really. Um, it, it was a desperate situation in which I needed to reach somebody that I couldn't reach. And I only had so long to do it. And yet he was also within me, so very reachable, but also about as distant as somebody could really be in a completely different world. So my kind of <laughs> imagination was desperately trying to find contacts, ways to get to him. And so this idea of sending a line down to him felt very powerful. And I don't really remember when it first sprung up. I mean, I remember the feeling that I, I sent him a hazelnut once, and I wrote about this in the book. I mean, I just ate the hazelnut. But the feeling that that was a way to access him somehow, because in you know the very depths of some figment of the, um, the the taste or the sort of chemical makeup of the hazelnut would eventually get into the amniotic fluid and may in some way have influenced some part of some part of him. You know, I was constantly desperately seeking ways of making contact. But they were always rather separate ways of making contact. You know, the needle, as you mentioned, is another one. I think this is an example of a, a metaphor that just really sprang up out of a need. It was just my my thinking. I didn't. It wasn't a literary decision, but more what what I kept coming to as an experience. And I suppose for the book, then I made sure that each time another one of these attempts, these desperate attempts to reach him, was brought up. I, I I tried to see whether I could use imagery or the word line or imagery of lines to help to support that. And then after he died, um, there were still lines between us. The ribbons, his coffin was lowered down into the into the ground. On this seemed to me to be another kind of line. Um, blood, um, you know, you you um, you bleed after birth. This seemed to be another line 
to him in some way or lines from him. So the, the, these lines actually carried on um, both during pregnancy and after pregnancy, but also in a way that's obviously rather confusing because he really was there during pregnancy, but the lines weren't, you know, he was very differently gone after pregnancy. And of course, you're also a fine artist who spent a lot of time thinking about lines and drawings. Does that come into it? While we're talking about that, could you speak about why you settled on life writing as the creative form for this project mm. rather than, say, drawing? Yeah, such a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, my, my default had been not just about the creative process, but specifically the process of drawing. So it was all about lines. Lines were everywhere. Um, and specifically the line in movement, you know, the moving line of, of a drawing in progress, which always interested me more than uh, looking at the static lines of a drawing completed. And I think that's part of the reason that it felt so right to me that my, my thesis should be talking about how once you finished a drawing, you've really lost the life. Because as long as that line is moving, as long as you've got the pencil on the page and the pencil is moving around, then the thing that you're drawing still has some potential for its form to continue to develop and shape and move. And as soon as that image is finished, that's it. You've laid it down. You've kind of pinned it down dead. Um, you lift your pencil and it, and it can't move anymore. So that the linearity, the kind of movement of the line in drawing, it, it, will, have been, it will have been in my mind um, at the time. And, and actually, although the odd chapters of the book, chapters one, three, five, and, and an epilogue are about Gabriel, the even numbers of the book are about drawing because I wanted to really explore this analogy between drawing, the lines of drawing and the lines of life. Um, I'd love you to tell me more about this. I'm fascinated as to how you combine a book about fine art and about drawing and a life writing memoir or biography about loss and grief. So you alternate the chapters, but how do you make these connections overt and how do you make them play together? This has been a, a challenge, um, but it made so much sense to me from the very beginning. It was the, it was the very impetus for writing the book that I knew I had to find a way to, to, um, to make it work because the ideas seemed to me to match perfectly. I mean, I suppose the central analogy is this idea that, you know, if you're drawing, the more and more and more you draw, the more you fix the form of this lively, this, in fact, I was imagining drawing a sparrow, the more you fix the form of this sparrow onto the page until finally, as I say, it will never move again. Now, if you're pregnant with a baby that will die at birth, the analogy to drawing doesn't seem so strange because you're creating and creating and creating and creating. The last thing you want to do is finish creating him because you know that at that point you lift your pencil off the page and the thing that's that's in front of you that's you know um, will lose its life. Um, so I found that there were really interesting connections between the stations in the life of a drawing and the stations in the life of the of the baby, and um, and also it allows you if you if you're really focusing in minute detail on the detail of drawing, then you can actually look at it in a way that you wouldn't dare to look at the the st the equivalent stations in the life of the child. So um, when we buried Gabriel, I realized for the first time that when you bury somebody, they are actually still there. And I, I somehow hadn't really appreciated that. And that's not something that we, I hadn't appreciated it. Of course, I knew, I mean, it's, you know, but I hadn't spent any time with that idea because it's something that we struggle to contend with. We don't talk about 
the body still being there when it's been buried. I mean, already this is perhaps not a nice thing to, to listen to or think about. What we can think about is what happens to a drawing when you finish drawing it. The drawing is there, it's static on the page, and um, it can be it can be looked after, it can degrade over time, or the efforts of paper conservators can keep it stable, but it is always an effort. And I think it's, it's interesting and a bit macabre and a bit difficult to... Um, it's a challenge. I mean, the thing is, it's a book about a baby dying. It's, there, there will be challenging aspects to it. But I think there are ways in which we can look at very difficult aspects of our human lives by looking at them through other things that makes them, it means you can unflinchingly think about these, these difficult ideas. I was very struck by your description of speaking to Gabriel and realising that you were using a language that was irrelevant, that it didn't perhaps make logical sense to use child comprehensible language to write to your imagined version of him. Did you experience these sorts of contradictions about what feels right or appropriate? And how do you negotiate these? Do people sometimes get it wrong in how they communicate with you about Gabriel from a, from a place of goodwill? And do you have an audience in mind, an audience that you're trying to communicate with and explain these contradictions? Oh, that's so interesting. Uh, I think I'll tackle the second question first, just because it's fresh in my mind. Um, actually, I'm I'm always on a, on a sentence level. I'm always very aware that what I'm writing needs to be understandable. And sometimes when I come up with these very dense metaphors that make sense in my mind, I do need to do a lot of work, just technical work, setting things out in such a way that they, they make sense and can be understood by just anyone who isn't me. Um, and then I'm also aware that there are some things that, well, I suppose that then the question is, I'm, I'm thinking about making decisions about um, the chapters I'm writing at the moment are about his his death and when we say goodbye to him in the hospital the day after his death. And my questions to myself and I suppose to my imagined reader are how much can you take? Um, it would be very easy to underestimate what the reader is able to um, understand and not flinch at. But at the same time, I don't want to be writing a book that is a you know a miserable a misery you know book, um, or that seems to be uh, creating emotive situations for the sake of it. So I think I'm very conscious of um, trying to figure out what my relationship is with the reader, and then meanwhile I I don't quite I feel that the book I'm reading writing is quite strange as you as Kate mentioned you know it's bringing together fine art and drawing with this personal story that's quite strange and although there's clearly a readership out there for books that relate to death it doesn't seem to put people off buying a book interestingly um I'm doing the book I'm doing regardless of whether it's a book anybody would want to read because it is the story that is there you know so I don't know if that answers the first question, but I suppose we'll nuance it by, well, I suppose it's, I mean, I think the, the way that you connected your two questions was absolutely right, because people must be doing that constantly. Um, you know, in, in this conversation, I suppose we're probably all doing it as well. You know, this is, these subjects are quite difficult and, we, we, you know, we have to think about how to broach them. And so you asked about the errors people have made as they've been trying to do exactly that very loving and caring, careful um, negotiation. And actually there's an example that really stuck in my mind. Um, that I thought was very interesting. And it's it's rather a sad um, 
scenario, but but I'll, I'll explain that Gabriel died shortly before Christmas, and then because Christmas is a very busy time, he was on it. We couldn't bury him for um, a few three weeks, I think, after. So he he remained with the Undertakers for three weeks. We were given the option to to go and visit him there, but we decided not to. And I think that this was a very interesting situation on reflection because I had some phone contact with the Undertakers during that time. And their experience of um, supporting the parents of children who've passed away and babies who've who've passed away has obviously taught them um, that they should speak lovingly of the babies, talk about how lovely they look. And they also have a practice of of keeping the babies in uh, kind of Moses baskets, you know, those kind of wicker baskets. So obviously they'll be buried in in whatever they'll be buried in, in, in a coffin. But for the while they're in while they're there with the undertaker, they are looked after. Is the phrase um, now because he was there over Christmas, and I, and I gave the the undertaker a call um, about making making casts of his hands and feet, which is something that I was worried if I didn't do, I might regret having not done. And she said she would do this, and she said, "Listen, don't worry. I know it's Christmas. We always put toys into the cots of the babies and the children who are with us over Christmas." And I thanked her and I said, how lovely. That's so nice to know you're, you're looking after him. Because I didn't want to say, take them out. That's a category error. He isn't alive and you're making a mistake. And the reason I didn't do that <laughs> was because I wanted to make sure she liked me and felt well disposed towards me so that she would treat my baby well. So that she, when she did these hand and footprints, uh, these cut hand and foot casts. She would do it gently and lovingly. So here we are, both create. Neither of us were really sure quite what was real about this baby. She was giving him toys. I thought that was wrong, but at the same time, I wanted her to be gentle to him with his body. Yeah. So I think that's an example of an error I, that stuck in my mind as a, a category error, which I found very interesting. That was a rather like me trying to use childish language as I as I as I wrote to him. We we. We have to make death into something metaphorical or fictional. We use words like he fell asleep, you know. Uh, in, in fact, the very fact that we, we bury people lying flat as if they're in bed, uh, the very fact that when people die, we tend to speak in hushed tones in the room with them as though they're asleep. So we have a big sleep-death metaphor, certainly in the, in the West that we use, that um, supports us. And then we can talk all about the, the wider structures that support us um, in understanding death, which very often come from a religious perspective. And actually, I, I could, there is a passage I could read which explores that. So my husband's Catholic and our living son has been baptised. And we were very clear because of that, that we both wanted our uh, Gabriel to be to be baptised too. For my husband, because he's Catholic. And for me, because for, for a number of reasons, principally because I wanted him to have everything that my, our living son had had. But at the same time, I'm not Catholic, I'm not religious, and I wanted to understand what it meant to me to be to be going along with this very rich metaphor or story as I saw it. So this is how I how I wrote about it. In the weeks before his birth, I'd looked up the words and gestures of the baptism and their significance to try and understand what they mean for the secular mother of a Catholic child. I read about the ancient gods Yahweh and Elohim all the legends of water and flood and salvation that flow into the pages of the Bible and convene upon the ritual of baptism that cleanses with water, symbolic of new life. 
On different pages, I read there was a word for the underwater feeling newborn babies are meant to feel, all at sea in their mother's arms. People call it oceanic, the peace of oneness with the infant's world who is the loving mother. A century ago, it was thought that this first underwater oneness might be the source of all religious feeling, a feeling that once, before life really began, far back in our body's histories, there was this oneness we will always miss thereafter. Perhaps this very feeling, this longing to return, had infused the making of those early myths that made their way into the water of the Bible and was returned to its source every time a baby as new as Gabriel is baptised. Holy water poured back into the oceanic dream that set it going. I had heard of this longing before. Dante called it love, a force which to his medieval mind was a pull almost like gravity, a pull of love towards God and the order of his creation, strong enough even to pull the planets into orbit. To me it all convened to mean that when you're in the ocean of your mother's arms, nothing pulls you. You are, too briefly, exactly where all the forces of gravity would have you be. So that, to me, felt like a different created narrative from the created narrative of putting toys in the coffin, although I'm not completely sure why. It's so fascinating, this sort of nebulous area of uncertainty, which story is the right story, or are there multiple stories that can be told? And you're exploring it through the way in which you're creating this book in such a fascinating, sensitive way, trying out other people's traditions, trying out different languages, trying out different categories, different genres between art and life writing. And I know you've thought a lot also about the way other families tell stories, because what I learned from you is that you're so fascinating that I didn't really know is that this practice of grieving for the loss of a baby by creating fictionalized accounts and metaphors is quite common. It's what everybody does, and it's a human response to loss, isn't it? And in these, these very specific cases where a baby is lost, so the outside world has never really shared in that life, the parents very secretly and in a very introspective way create these stories amongst themselves, but they hardly ever share them. Now, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, yes. Um, yes, it, it seems to me that in the passage I just read, I was using lots of the big stories, you know, the Bible, um, the idea of the oceanic, Dante, gravity. These are big, big narratives. And, and I had those big narratives at my disposal because I, I had just finished a defil that put all these big narratives together. Um, obviously, you don't normally encounter a, a loss at the point at which you've just charged yourself up with lots of metaphors to help you describe that loss. But nevertheless, we do find again and again that parents are doing this. What happens when a baby dies is sometimes you don't have a funeral. Sometimes you don't have a birth or death certificate, depending on how old the baby was, how, how, how far along the pregnancy. Um, certainly what you don't have is you don't know the child and nobody knows the child. Parents themselves are very confused about exactly what they've lost, although they feel this gaping hole, this wound in their life. And so it's obviously very difficult for family and friends and loved ones, however hard they try, to really understand that something has gone because it almost looks like nothing has gone. And so what parents do, what families do, is they will fill these gaps 
with their own stories. And these can be really, really inventive and strange personal stories that might depend upon some, you know, family tradition of something happening or some understanding of the way we are in our family or something. So yeah, everybody makes these stories. And and I mean, in some ways, my book is almost an activist gesture because these stories so often do remain secret because it's so difficult to persuade people that the baby was real, that the feelings are real, um, that a story needs to be created. Um, and so I'm, I'm being very, very vocal indeed about my about about my stories and I, and I think everybody who does this kind of hopes that it will contribute to a a um a sort of unpiecing of what what really amounts to a sort of taboo of silence that surrounds um baby loss I'd just like to take a moment to draw together some of the threads of the really interesting things you've been saying Tamarin around the notion of a category error and communication and drawing on different stories, whether these are big overarching stories like the Bible or very personal metaphors and stories of individual people and families. And I want to ask you about feedback on your work and how you're dealing with feedback. Do you welcome it as you go along or do you have such a strong idea of your personal story and your metaphors that really feedback isn't something you're wanting to engage with in the way that some writers often crave it? Um, no, I do crave it. <laughs> I'm, I'm very keen for any 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 suggestions and corrections. Um, although I would say that I'm most receptive to suggestions on the sentence level, the paragraph level, the structure level. Um, I think it would, as you as you suggest, I think it would be confusing. Uh, I don't feel I quite invented the metaphors. I feel that they were there, and what I'm doing is sort of uncovering them and revealing something that really is a real story. Um, and I think if somebody were to suggest, listen, I'm not sure the underwater metaphor quite works, so I think you should use a metaphor of such and such. I think that's the kind of suggestion that um, might might be difficult to take in. But I mean, I would probably, I'd probably see if I can make the water metaphor then work and ask what's not walk, working about it. But it's the water metaphor. These metaphors are now the reality of the story. These fictions have become the reality of the story. So. Um, they may need telling differently, but um, or they may need omitting. Maybe they shouldn't be in the book, but um, they are part of the story, so they can't they can't be changed. But I'm very 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 happy always to have feedback. As you say, there are so many recurring metaphors out there about motherhood and water. I wonder if you could speak about this as a writer. Do you think that water metaphors are almost a sort of genre marker of motherhood writings? Or do you think that it's the most appropriate metaphor and everybody happens to find similar ones? Um, I think the water metaphor is so pervasive with pregnancy and birth and new motherhood. And I remember when, when, when I was preparing for our first son, I remember I, I ordered a huge amount of baby supplies and they arrived in an enormous box and the box was very, very light. And I realized that it was very, very light because this enormous box, everything I'd bought was absorbent. And it seemed that the message was very clear. A baby and a mother leak. <laughs> There's a sort of, we are not quite separate at that point. There is a kind of watery fusion between us. You know, there is going to be, there's going to be nappies, there's going to be milk, you know, there's going to be a mess. Um, so I think that there is this new wetness in life, new fluidity and new <laughs> preparedness to kind of, amalgamate with another human being but the the image of the connection of water to birth is also very very strong and it's not just the fact that water births have become very popular 
Um, but I think there's a sense that the metaphors of water are really everywhere you look when you when you're when you're reading about birth. Um, and I think it's also partly because there's this sense in which when you go into labour, you sort of descend into this almost nocturnal or underwater realm of thinking, um, so that you're not quite present in the room. You know, almost like you're going into a sleep or a trance state. And I think a lot of people can make sense of that by thinking that they are going underwater or going into the dark or into the night. So I think, I mean, it must breed, you know, metaphors of water probably breed more metaphors of water. You read about them and so they become more real and so you write about them. But at the same time, I think there does seem to be something inherent in these experiences that just has a a wetness, a wateriness, the way that underwater there's a feeling that everything is somehow slightly more fused and undifferentiated. When I was listening to you saying beautiful, insightful things about motherhood and water, it made me think of one other really prominent metaphor in your work that we haven't touched on that much, which is the nighttime. And I was thinking, how is nighttime connected to motherhood? But then, of course, there's this deeply strange twilight zone where your baby's awake all night, and then it feels as though you're constantly awake in the dark with bleary eyes. Oh, that's my experience and recollection. Um, almost surprised that the world is still there in the morning and people are still going about their business and going to work or so on. But that doesn't seem to me like a very creative time. No, because I think that the people who have written, there's a huge tradition of writers writing at night and writing about how they write at night. And it would seem to me that not one of them had a baby in the house stopping them from... It's so often the case when people write about writing though, isn't it? I know. How could you do that with a baby though? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the tradition, the, 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 there is a big tradition of um, the nighttime being an especially creative time. It's where you're, you're thinking differently. Nobody's disturbing you. So there's that. But also you, your mind is freed of the kind of um, bright or boring everyday needs of daytime. And you're awake in this secret, silent, extra time where the world is all yours because everybody else is asleep um, and you're close to dream. And um, there is something about the kind of alternative world of the night that has been connected to, yeah, to, to creativity. Um, for me, it just seemed that, um, I mean, we know that babies in the womb are pretty much asleep all of the time. We don't know whether to call it asleep or unconscious, but they are sort of dosed up on on various sort of hormones and have very little oxygen. Um, and all of these things contribute to them basically being asleep. And we think probably dreaming towards the end. Although it's interesting to think what kind of material babies have to make dreams from. Um, so Gabriel seemed to exist somewhere between a nighttime and an underwater space, um, both of which I think seem to mean something very similar to me. I mean, underwater, life can flow around and then you bring it up to the light and, you know, the gills of a fish close and it can't breathe. But at the same time, the dreams can can sort of um, flit and you know squirm around in the in the night in the in uh, in the night, and you bring them up into the day, and again they they're lost. This reminded me, Tamron, of the first time we met when we were listening to Sarah Knott, who'd come to talk to us about her book Mother Is a Verb, and she said she'd found a philosopher who'd written about the state of modern motherhood as being one of interruption. And you could see there was practically a ripple that went around this room of women saying, yes, that's exactly what it is. And so the idea of nighttime being a time when you're not interrupted is, I suppose, something that's fairly unique in the case of your book and in the issues that you're thinking about. Yes. And and I think it's very striking that 
Um, you know, I, I, I was entitled to maternity leave and some women do take it and some don't in, in this situation. Many, many do, or many go back to work and then uh, have to stop because they, they can't go on. Um, but I had uninterrupted time. The house was incredibly quiet um, and the quietness presented itself to me as a problem. But at the same time, for me, mothering Gabriel, if that's what I'm doing by writing this book, and I'm not sure it really is, but anyway, it, it has been at its best characterised by uninterrupted time. And it's because it's been uninterrupted that I've been able to reflect and, and be creative, um, which can be done in small bursts. But often you get different literary forms, don't you, in, in interrupted in forms that are designed to cope with interruption. I think this is why I'm a poet, because poems are short. And so is the time when you get to write uninterrupted when you're a mother. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. So I have here a couple of paragraphs about um, which describe the, the very quiet maternity leave which followed his death. The silence of the empty house was very loud, as though the bones of my inner ear had been damaged by overwhelming noise, and now its absence was all I could hear. The same shape and size as the sound, but heard in negative. The silence had a centre that was very still, so still it took up space in the house. It did not have a fixed place, but was often with me, close to my chest, pressing against a shoulder, pressing a cheek. This bundle of stillness was like the silence in the way it described precisely the absence of what there should be, an absence of little forced movements, small squirms, reflexes gradually opening out, the quickly resolved startles of sleep. A very dense concentration of matter, of sprung potential, had been subtracted, establishing an error in the physics of the house. If you could measure the capacity of the building against the volume of matter it contained, you'd think there'd been a misreading. You wouldn't believe your instruments could possibly be telling the truth. The stillness and I moved around the house, affecting the physics of the rooms. On reflection, I hesitate to call these places rooms, and the range of objects within them, our furniture and our things. It's true that there happened to be floors and walls and stairs, and that I did make use of these surfaces as I moved through the building. But it was as though the floors and walls and stairs and I were all pretending, pretending this was normal, pretending this was the same house with the same rooms as before, in which we might do the things we used to. Tamarin, it's been a great honour to talk with you. I think we're all struck by how eloquent and considered powerful you are as you articulate this experience of writing about Gabriel's life and death. So thank you for joining us and we wish you all the best with this project. Thank you for joining us on Writing Lives, Biography and Beyond, a podcast by the Oxford Centre for Life Writing. Follow us on Twitter at Ox Life Writing to hear more about what we do. And if you'd like to be more involved, access exclusive events and attend our virtual book club, then join our Friends Scheme. We also offer writing groups and mentoring to those working on their own life writing projects. You can find all the details on our website if you Google OCLW.